This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Bites. We'd like to say a massive welcome back to Bite Into It for the year. Uh, and also a big happy Chinese New Year to people. Kyung Yi Ba Chai. And uh, I'm half Chinese, so I've got to do the, uh, the shout-outs. Uh, Apologise for the accent. I don't even know which dialect I'm speaking anymore. It's pretty bad. Uh, so to save me from myself in studio this evening, as always, um, we have... A random lot of people from the Bite crew. Joining us this evening, we have Warren Davies. Hello, good evening. Hello. Happy New Year. Thank you. And James Noble. Hello, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And our silent producer, panellist, wonderful co-organiser, Dan Salmon, is with us this evening also. Now, we have a great show coming up for you tonight. A couple of guests who are coming to us via Pause Festival, which is on in Melbourne at the moment, just kicked off in Fed Square this week. Yeah. And uh, do do tune in for those a bit later. We'll have Dr. Sulette Dreyfus and also Bonnie Shaw from the City of Melbourne. So that's something to stay tuned for. But there's just so much news to cover and we've really missed the show. So let's get into this. James, what's caught your eye this year? Well, uh, I'm quite a sports fan. I love the basketball, but I also love the Super Bowl. And I... Getting into the tech realm, there was a article just before the Super Bowl kicked off, like on Super Bowl Sunday, that one of the players had broken his arm in the previous game, and they used a uh, 3D printer in very very quick turnaround to produce a 3D print to put over wrap over his arm oh. so they could play. So he actually played um, in the game because he was one of their star players with a broken arm. So, which is a pretty unheard of thing, something a little bit different and new. It's a, it's a little bit different from. I mean, they do it in the army all the time now, where they do the quick cast so they continue and keep tra- keep tracking. But now they they basically approach someone who doesn't even do this technology, a three D printer that was in the area that could have that could do a three D scan of him, produce it, and get get him get it fitted and ready and hit and hit the the requirements of the. Um, um, NFL of about security safety because of impact, uh, so that he could play and be because you have to be cleared within a few days before the actual game. So this is something I spotted. Wow, that's that's coming a long way. I, I love how kind of lo-fi it is as well. Uh, White clouds <laughs> where the people that printed it have chaos in Target and so forth. So he could have just like gone down to like the local uh, <laughs> mall and like printed something off, which is the whole idea. Yeah. The, the thing I didn't get, maybe you guys can help me with this, is they asked for more time saying it's going to be a big print job or it's going to take a little while. <clears throat> That's not how I understand how it works. Like, when I stand in front of a printer, obviously, you know, it yeah. prints those pages out quickly. Well, what they Is wanted... something I don't know about 3D printing? No, Why not at all. It time? was more about that. what they wanted to make sure that it was perfect and they basically so the were design, trying to get, really. The design was yeah. the... And hence why it's so rudimentary. They wanted to make it look cool because they realised the impact implications of it being used in the Super Bowl would give them some good press, I think, maybe. Okay. But it was more about the, the design. They wanted to keep really simple. Um, so I saw that we've missed a few things over the over the break, which has been pretty big as well. I think uh, what we were talking about earlier, but uh, we missed a couple of things that we shouldn't speak about off air until we're on air. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, there's, there's, there is plenty. There is plenty. Um, one of the things that did catch my eye was the um, conversations uh, over the past week around Twitter, um, uh. and people on Twitter hate change. They they love how it used to be. Um, you know, we all loved it when we we're you know following ten people and ten people followed us and, and whatever. Um, 
it has been an interesting few years for them. Their um, stock price has has fallen. Um, their user growth has kind of plateaued. Um, so they're looking at ways that they could uh, potentially change that up. And potentially this was just a leak to see if people were open to the idea that mm-hmm. maybe an uh, algorithmic style uh, feed would be the way to go. And it wasn't greeted with um, much support. With a few hashtags on their own channel, right? Yeah, yeah RIP Twitter and, and, yeah. and so forth. It's interesting in that uh, it... It does look at new ways to deliver um, news to us. Um, they have been doing, I guess, in a way, algorithmic stuff before with things like while you're away. So when you log in on your mobile device, um, not so much on desktop, I think, but you do yeah. see stuff from, you know, this is what you miss from, you know, some of the more significant stories that people have been talking about. So, yeah. you know, four or five users have tweeted something, they'll they'll put that up and say, hey, this is something that you should Or something know. you quite often click on their leads, then it knows that you're yeah. mm. interested in what they have to say. Mm. I mean, it's got, I mean... Um, like the CEO Jack Dorsey's, like this isn't even in the article that he's, and it's true. It's going to be difficult for him to try and shift the the, the Titanic. Well, this because this everyone's too- up in arms. Could it yeah. be subscription-based? Could it be that you choose what type of feed that you get? Well, there's two major problems facing him, and, and one is the, the lack of new users and uh, new people not coming on board. That's a massive thing that mm. his shareholders are, are worried about. <laughs> but... Um, but I think the other thing is the user experience of the existing users. So, yes, the user base has arced up over these potential changes. However, what we've seen more and more stories about these days is how if you're a massive Twitter user, as in you have a lot of followers, then you experience the worst aspects of the user experience of Twitter. Uh, there was, a, I think, a Real Madrid player who posted what it's like after he posts on Twitter and gets a million uh. likes and follows and retweets and things. And his phone becomes unusable. It drains the battery. He has to plug it in. Why is he doing it on his own As phone? all the That's notifications are going, yeah. well, sure. I mean, yeah. maybe... Is that that moment when you're like, damn it, I forgot to turn on notifications. Yeah, I need you to... can't get to it. Exactly. Yeah. But it was just, it was a bit of a demonstration of how yeah. unworkable that UX is, how it doesn't scale very well. They really and need then, like a super user account, don't yeah. they? Where it just mutes that kind of stuff. But then there's the other part of that, which is that uh, the more visible you are, the more... Uh, open you are to bad behaviour following you around on there mm-hmm. and uh, and to sort of being torn down and not being able to, to decide what you see or not. They, they dealt with that a little bit with the verified tick, which, yep. which uh, meant that, you know, you could just switch off everything except for other verified users. But um, they Do you haven't... mean this is God is not this is yeah. God? <laughs> Yeah, but the other, the other, the other issue that they're, they're saying is that um, you know harassment and things has been a yeah. massive part of the Twitter culture. You know, bullying, harassment, all these negative sort of traits. And how are they going to cope with that better? Well, I noticed. I mean, I'm relating back to sport that they because I watch the playoffs. A lot of the players turn off their, their Twitter accounts and don't look at it or read it during important matches and games because mm. they don't want to be. They don't want to see things that, that could affect the way they're going to play, yeah. so which is quite important. I think, and the super user idea, I mean, we're solving Twitter's problems for them. Like maybe you could start charging the people that don't want to lose their account. If you've got 20,000 followers, they're probably important to you. I think what you're saying about the, the headspace of a, of a sports star mm. and needing to be in a zone to perform is really valid because when people are, are dealing with negative experiences on Twitter, like being harassed, they're often told, why don't you just switch off and go on with your life without it? Now, if you're a sports star, your job doesn't actually involve to do much of the tweeting. I mean, it's great for your profile, great for connections mm. to the fans, but other than that, it's not vital. But for lots of other people, turning off that social network is not 
something they can do and then still be effective in their jobs these days. Yeah. So it really is, you know, it's a, it's a real problem. It's it's not just a, a sort of and the growth is a big problem. Sorry. No, no, no. I I I, um, I agree. No, go on. I was the, the growth thing is a problem. I've noticed. I was before we last week. I was talking about um, um, Paul, uh, my business partner, was saying, "Oh, check me out. I've just." Ticked over five hundred followers, and so it's been waiting for four ninety nine for ages. And I said, oh, "I'm, I'm, I've, it's, I've got eighty new followers in the last nine months. Like I'm, st- I'm in the thousands, but not only just, but it's that's how slow it is. It has dropped off. Whereas the people that were early adopters, just by default, have got ten thousand followers. And so it's a the way that the, you're gathering and momentum is no longer there anymore. How do they change the way that to get more people interested? Because if you sign up today. It'd take you two years to get 200 followers. I kind of think it might be the other way around, where once people realised that it was an easy way to broadcast and sort of, yeah. you know, perpetuate your, your, your fame, and like footballers in particular, but also TV stars and musicians mm. and so forth. Oh, those guys, yes. When they jumped on it, and all of a sudden, I've seen accounts where people have been on it for a few months and they, they tick over a thousand really quickly. Once they had all their Facebook friends and all the people from WhatsApp and stuff, they can they can do that quite quickly. Yep. Whereas back in, back, in, back in the day in Melbourne, there was only a few hundred people using it, and mm. you added them all within the first few weeks and everyone just sat around on yeah. on those things. But they also had the benefit of becoming suggested users. So some yep. people, um, you know, have, have had the benefit of coming on and then becoming the default subject matter experts because yeah. they were mm. there first. And I mean, quite a lot of people... I'll, I'll but hyping on too long. I was saying a lot of people have uh, started to switch to Snapchat as a way to be able to do that communication because they can do the, the it's much easier to do the video as well as they can do the com- conversations. Yeah. Um, and that started to grow quite quickly. So and they, and I find I down I have to admit when I first installed it I was a bit skeptical a year or two ago and I didn't realize that I put the wrong date in so I went to the child Snapchat. So I, uh, <laughs> and I could, so now I've lost my 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 handle because I can't figure out how to change it from children's Snapchat to adult Snapchat. If you uh, just wait eighteen years, James, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they'll upgrade you. Speaking of um, speaking of someone who has been waiting, um, one of the things that did happen in the past week or two, or it, it's been happening for a few years now, is um, uh, progress on um, the status of, of Julian Assange. Uh, there was a decision made uh, last week by uh, a UN working group. Uh, that did rule that the UK and Swedish authorities unlawfully detained uh, the, the WikiLeaks founder. Uh, apparently, one of the large parts of the decision was due to the fact that he was held in isolation for a large part of that early on. I don't know, do you guys kind of feel like it's just a, a, another small step in, in a long-running saga or do you feel like it's turned a corner and the fact that the UN is suggesting that he should be released and he shouldn't be pursued? I think there's no surprises here and that um, they've they've characterised his detention as harsh and disproportionate and I think there's no doubt that um, someone taking a human rights perspective as they have is going to look at this and say this is massively problematic, the, mm. the power that's being thrown around. Um, I think his, his detention in general is, is very difficult to deal with because we don't know a lot of facts about it Mm. um but you know i I guess i err on the side of yes it seems very reasonable and everyone's made every declaration that they would try and uh, repatriate him to the states if they got him to sweden and 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 we know what's happened to uh, chelsea manning in in similar circumstances and it's not acceptable yeah. I, I don't think it's, it's an acceptable way to go through things. It, it's not uh, transparent enough. There's not enough due process. There's uh, why would you put yourself in that position? It's 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 but, pretty harsh. And both of the authorities have rejected it, right? And the UK and Sweden rejected the 
the uh, what, what they have deemed to be unlawful, and they say they deny it and say no. Mm. Um, so that they, if they do, then drag him to Sweden, then take him to the US. They can always deny that they never they never agreed with the ruling anyway. Um, it just it just it just stinks of. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's almost like the merit that everyone they know that he what he hasn't. In my eyes, I don't think he's done anything illegal. He may have done part of it in terms of how he got the information, but he was given it. And also, it's problematic because um, having this stuff come into play means that he actually there are some women in Sweden who can't uh, seek justice properly. Mm. Because of this affecting their case, and that's got to be massively frustrating for them as well. And that's you know that's another thing that doesn't get to be dealt with. And yeah, yeah. Mm. Speaking of other things that are a little bit confusing, the design process at uh, <laughs> one of our favourite tech brands, uh, um, uh, Uber, um, eloquently put. Yeah, I did see. I think it may have been in, in one of your feeds. Someone did refer to it as the fart locker, which was yes. uh, which was quite nice. <laughs> what, what, what's what's been going on, James? What's what's with this new logo? Um, God, do you want to go doing the short option? Yeah, sure, sure. Short, what's the short version. Uh, the CEO told the designer how he wanted it and did it himself, oh, and then that never the designer left. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, the, the, there was even talk that they, they were people were joking that the um, designers at Uber didn't know how to use Adobe Illustrator either for the logo because there were so many mistakes in it. Mm. Uh, so the CEO of, of Uber uh, personally helped, um, inverted commas, uh, design the new logo um, for the reimagining of Uber. And then the following, with, I think, was it the same day, did you say? Or was it f- yeah, he announced his departure the same Yeah, day. I think yeah. Um, I've... I've forgotten his... Uh, Andrew Crow, uh, the head of the Uber design, uh, announced he was leaving the company the same day that they announced the new branding. It sounds a bit sulky, but I mean, mm. it's hard to know the context. The, one of the cool things about it is, depending on which country you're in, you get a different logo, and there's like 68 different colours. There's one for... I didn't know there was a bicycle service as well. Did you guys know that? No. No. Yeah, so there's like a shared bike service. So you get a dink. Well. You get a dink. Mm, interesting. Or, or a peg. <laughs> yeah. That'd be much cooler. Yeah. If it was in yeah. Melbourne, it would be a peg. I'd yeah. prefer a rickshaw, but, you know, I'm old school that way. <laughs> uh, so another thing that happened over the break was the National Innovation and Science Agenda was launched by our national government. Now, that's really interesting. You can go along and see all the hype on their website and what have you, and that's great, except that they've just announced even more deep cuts to the CSIRO. And... Mm. Um, completely cutting the climate research facilities within um, our government. And they're using a lot of language that we usually employ on this show. You know, they're very startup friendly. It's all about failing fast and, you know, finding new innovative solutions to things. But these yeah. are things that we've already got um, quite a lot of knowledge and experience in within our public service workers at the CSIRO. They're doing great jobs um, and... They're not going to be there anymore. I think it's fair to say they're failing fast with the CSIRO. (laughs) They they certainly are. Um, Our climate models are along the best in the world and our measurements are honed those models to prove global climate change, Um, says Dr Marshall, who is um, the CSIRO chief executive, in an email sent to staff explaining the need to cut the 350 full-time jobs. Mm. I I think the government's getting savvy of how to talk to their audience and spin is getting better it's a lot of spin and it's very frustrating to hear um stuff from our sector being used to spin uh, spin. i mean you know Mm. how many times can we can we hear the word disruption from this government when they really mean you know cuts to to things that we might believe in be scrappy (sighs) do do, do well on less funding yeah yeah 
Anyhow, it's um, it's a little outrageous. I know we're not the science show. I, I expect to hear more about this um, on the weekend when our science. Yeah, this show's literally here. popped up on my on my. Um, my Facebook feed because obviously I'm looking at thing, different government bits and pieces through uh, through work and then it's t- it, just, it was a sponsored ad on my Facebook channel and I looked through it and then when I looked at it I still couldn't quite understand what they were trying to tell me and there's videos and it all sounds exciting and then when you start to delve into the uh, to the cuts and funding there like, hang on this doesn't make sense it sounds positive but it's all very negative. Not only that we, we really do need localised research Australian based research to really target the most effective change that we can make to be solving problems and what else you know the other voices we hear in this space in the in the tech sphere talking about uh environmental impacts of uh of massive global climate change Hmm. you think of elon musk you think of tesla you think of the whole proposition of his company being we are killing the environment in which we rely upon to survive Hmm. now either we're going to have to make massive changes to how we use energy to make this a survivable scenario or we have my plan B, which is let's let's shoot a colony off to Mars, yeah. and and you go that's that's where the thought leadership is coming from within our sector. It's amazing, and in Australia yeah. we're like no no heads in the sand. Let's not research that at all. Yeah, I think that's also because of what our largest export is. Yeah, well, uh, wow, I've come back from the holidays ranty, uh, <laughs> listeners. I hope, I hope you're enjoying having having bite back with you for the year. Tonight, you're joined in studio with Warren, James, Dan and Vanessa. And we've just also been joined by Dr. Sulet Dreyfus. She literally wrote the book on hacking in (laughs) Melbourne with her book Underground. It's a cult book, which you may have seen. It's been turned into a couple of films. But uh, in her day job, she's a researcher at the University of Melbourne's Department of Computing and Information Systems. In addition to her academic work, uh, she uh, spends a lot of time... Talking about digital privacy and rights and security and helping us be a little bit more aware mm-hmm. about uh, that landscape. So, Dr. I, I, Dreyfus, I like, welcome. Welcome. I, I thank you very much. I, I try to think of it as um, gently nudging people towards improving their personal privacy. That's excellent. <laughs> now, one of the reasons you're here with us this evening is in your capacity as a guest of Pause Festival, mm-hmm. which is running this week down at Fed Square. Do check it out if you're uh, in Melbourne at the moment. But tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll be part of a session on the security paradox, individual privacy versus digital drift nets. With some usual suspects, John Lawrence is going to be moderating from the uh, Electronic Frontiers Australia. Uh, also, Still Gerin, who's a, an online tech journo. And Angela Daly, who's uh, in the research space uh, covering law and tech a lot. Mm, mm, a good group. Very good bunch. Um, so we're expecting big things from you. We're hoping you're going to solve all our issues. <laughs> what issues oh. are floating around at the moment that you think um, our listeners should be most aware of? So, uh, I mean, the, the big issue that is of concern, obviously, is uh, the um, shrinking personal privacy that we've all got. Uh, and that will certainly be on the agenda for discussion at pause fest um, but talking about digital drift nets in a, in a sort of big picture sense the paradox uh, and I, I wrote about this actually in the conversation uh, is that on the one hand governments are increasingly um, looking for ways to break into our private lives extract more of our private data extend their powers to reach into our privacy on the basis of chasing terrorists but on the other hand in doing this depending on whether they build back doors 
ourselves into things, they also potentially make us more insecure. So we are more likely to be exposed to risk through hackers or um, other you know uh, types of people who might want to access your personal data. So a really good example of this at the moment, a very live debate that's been happening is around proposals by the UK government and discussions going on in, in the US and you can be sure behind the scenes here in Australia uh, around uh, a government desire to basically break strong encryption. Uh, and that has um, uh, serious repercussions in terms of, you know, our whole digital life, our economy now is dependent on strong encryption. You don't have to trust a particular online company or corporations. You can just trust the mathematics behind the algorithm, uh, which is great. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why the proposal about 20 years ago that the U.S. government had for Clipper Chip, which was effectively breaking strong encryption, uh, was knocked back because the early tech industry for our e-commerce world recognized that no one was going to move their banking online if they couldn't trust the transactions. So this strong encryption underpins all of our trusts, you know, tens of millions of people around the world. Uh, and now this proposal is, um, don't worry, we'll backdoor it trust us, we're the government. But the risk is that, of course, um, uh, other people may get access to it, and that sort of backdoor key would be immensely valuable to industrial espionage people, you know, uh, as well as, um, you know, online criminals and all the rest of it. So once you create a hole, a security hole, you can be assured that there's a risk other people will use it as well. And then you run the risk of, you know, creating this, this monster where people all of a sudden don't trust their banks, their online insurance companies, all sorts of transactions we do every day. Are, are we more at risk? Uh, are we more at risk to ourselves, or are we uh, more at risk from the way third parties uh, handle our data? Do you feel? Well, I, it's an interesting question. I mean, we're at risk ourselves in the in the sense that we often don't have strong passwords. We often don't upgrade, um, uh, you know, security upgrades that are sent out for particular software operating systems. So that that is a big risk. And we send email via plain text, which is a bad idea. Um, but we're absolutely at risk um, from third parties to the extent that we're not likely to misuse our data, but they might. And so to that extent, the motivation becomes a risk. I mean, one thing I find extraordinary about young people who are very blasé about their privacies, particularly with social media, uh, is they forget that their private information is an asset. It is worth money. Uh, and they need to think about, before they give it away, um, how much are they going to pay personally for it and how much is it worth if they are going to give it away. The interesting thing about that is it's only worth something to other people and en masse. Mm. So if you have millions of people's yes. personal information, that's worth something. But I can't, I can't sell my personal information to Google, even though theoretically it's worth thousands of dollars. Well, it's interesting. So, I mean, it, you know, in the uh, computer underground, there has for a long time been the sale of information and uh, while you might say okay credit cards might sell for a buck US or something each um, uh, you've now got the sale of medical information 
And that could be much more. That could be three, ten, fifteen, thirty dollars for someone's medical information because it allows you to impersonate them in identity theft much more readily. So it, it is worth something. But I think you know the kind of thing to think about is this recent uh, announcement that we've seen from the government, uh, where the um, government in Canberra is trolling social media for people's personal announcements on Facebook, Twitter, you know, exclamations, whatever, to see if they happen to be on a pension. Are they on some yeah, sort of family benefits? And so exactly. Forth. Mm. Uh, and in fact, they recently announced they'd found, they'd done deep investigations and a thousand different cases of people who are on some sort of pension. And oh my God, they said, I'm really living with someone, but you're, you know, you haven't told them or you're having a baby and maybe you're taking a holiday overseas, but you have to report to the government now every time you want to leave the country if you're on any sort of childcare benefit, whatever. So we're sort of rapidly turning into not just a state that takes away privacy, but one that becomes Orwellian. Uh, and if you can imagine they've deep investigated a thousand people's cases, how many more people's social media data did they have to troll to get to those thousand people? I'd say probably tens of thousands. Hmm. Mm. I mean, it's interesting trolling. They, we publish that. I mean, we sign we sign that away when we when we when we tweet something. Yes. I mean, is is what's the difference between um, organised mm. reviews of yep. something a public f- platform? Yeah. As opposed to, I mean, if I look at. Um, somebody's thinking, say, hey, you don't have the money to be going on that Balinese holiday versus a bureaucrat in Canberra going, hang on, they've just published that in their own on welfare. Well, I, I think it's a different thing. I mean, if you think that some people view Twitter or Facebook, particularly Facebook, um, as being talking to their immediate community of friends, they might not include Centrelink oh, in no, that group. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so to that extent, they might not really be talking to Centrelink. No, sure. And if they don't have their privacy settings properly, they might actually be talking to Centrelink. So I'm interested in the other end of the spectrum. So we've talked Mm. a little about naive users, Mm. but what about the experts? We've heard from, say, bankers in the UK were dealing with this a little while Mm. ago saying, I can't believe our government is saying such naive things about wanting to break strong encryption. Mm. Our banks rely upon this to to conduct all of our business. We really need to be talking to our government. So what sort of advice is our government getting and and do the the goodies that they can get Mm. from massive overreach outweigh big business and the economy. So this will be a very interesting fight because uh, this fight will be uh, determined in part by whether or not uh, business and particularly the trust industries like financial industries understand what's at risk. If they're not really tech at the senior levels, they're not going to know that the thing they have as industries across the world spent literally billions of dollars over the last decade and a half instilling trust in us uh, is about to have the rug pulled out from underneath it. Um, and, and you know, you, you're, not, you're no longer going to go, my NZN, my Combank, my Westpac, oh, all of a sudden I don't really trust logging in and doing my banking online. Well, they just laid off a whole lot of bank tellers in the last decade and saved a lot of money off the back of doing that. So I'd say that it is going to be a pretty major fight. Unfortunately, a number of governments are taking advice from uh, counterterrorism experts and uh, law enforcement experts who have a myopic lens. Uh, And that lens is all about we just have to find those 20 terrorists in Australia, to which you say, and the other 23 million Australians? Mm. What about them? So what about the uh, the argument that we've heard a fair bit about every time... um 
you know, data collection ramps up mm. uh, about the the lack of success identifying terrorists using any of these means. Mm. Has has anything significantly changed in that landscape? Well, I mean, there is more surveillance and it's becoming more sophisticated. But the truth is that um, two things really need to happen. Uh, I think that the public needs to push back and go, uh, we live in a free society, we don't live in North Korea, and we don't really want to live in North Korea. So there's a moment at which we say, no, we're not going to trade away our personal and private lives. Uh, and to that extent, you will need to use good old-fashioned gumshoe detective work to find the, the hardened criminals who are dangerous to society. But we also have to change our expectations. It is unrealistic for us to say, oh, we expect 100% for ASIO or the AFP to actually find all the terrorists and stop them ahead of time. That's unrealistic and unfair. We have to accept there's a degree of risk. It's a tiny risk. It's a much lower risk than driving down the road on a freeway. And once we get that in perspective, you know, hopefully people will understand what what the trade-offs are on that. But the alternative is you go back to standing in long bank queues, and I don't think most people want to do that. It's all about convenience, really, isn't it? That's why your data's out there. Mm. And uh, it's almost, almost like capitalism gone crazy where the people are looking for opportunities to generate more revenue for themselves and the government's trying to figure out another way to make some more money rather than ch- rather than taxing the people that make billions of dollars every year. Let's figure out if we can take a few extra billion back from the people that probably actually mm. need it. Mm. Well, well, I think that's right. I guess we need to question why the government needs to know if its citizens leave the country just because they happen to be on some sort of benefit. Don't you go through a customs and and scan your passport and your passport has your name and all Mm. of your details on it anyway? The question isn't whether or not um, uh, your immigration, um, your border force uh, knows it. Um, it, That's not really the question. The question is whether or not that should be shared with Centrelink or any sort of child support agencies Mm. because one is about protecting borders and the other is about, in a way, um, surveilling in a quite oppressive way those mm. people who happen to be on lower incomes. Yeah, you're not allowed a holiday. You're not allowed a holiday. And even though you might be quite, you know, you might not be doing anything that's scamming the system at all. Mm. Have, you, have you come across any research, um, maybe even uh, generational differences uh, in, in terms of opinions on what a suitable level of privacy is? Uh, I know you hinted at the fact that young people are not necessarily more blasé, but more casual um, mm. with the information that they do share. Uh, I can't actually um, pull it out of the file right now, but I have seen stuff where people go, yes, it's a bad thing that anyone can find our data and information. Do I care? Not particularly. Mm. Because ultimately what's out there, a bunch of shopping lists, um, um, you know, some pictures of the holiday I went on and, and what have you. But it's, it's more so the principle, isn't it? Mm. What, 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 what should be available to be um, scraped by anyone? Absolutely nothing that I don't give approval for. Mm. And that's a, that's a completely different point of, point of view. It is. And in fact, it's one of the areas of research Research, uh, there's, a, there's a team I'm working with at Melbourne Uni, and we're very, um, we're actually in, at the moment looking for, for grant funding to do deeper research on at what thresholds do younger Australians go, mm, yep, yeah, no, I'd rather not share that information because I'd rather not give away that bit of my private life. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's been enough testing of um, the, the gentle gradations within that. So is it, you know, is it a provider collecting it? 
is that is it selling it to someone else? Is it data mining it? Is it data matching it? Mm-hmm. Um, is it doing um, predictive analytics on it? You know, I mean, there there is a world developing of um, kind of Tom Cruise Minority Report, um, which is kind of taken to the extreme. But um, for those sort of sci-fi fans out there, the idea that you could predict how someone's going to behave, and this has actually been referred to in some of the academic literature, predictive policing. Mm. Now that should scare people. Well, it's actually an al- it's like an algorithm, a yeah. real life algorithm, isn't it? Yeah. Do, do you guys ever sort of like very carefully click on articles based on the profile that you're building up? On, and what it actually says about you? <laughs> no, but I think about what profile's being built as I click on the article. That's what I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Just because just I read these types of articles more than anything else doesn't mean, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we're, we're all in a privileged space that we actually all work in this sort of area and we're, mm. we're a bit more aware than most. Yeah. And I'm just the joy you were talking. It reminded me that Google brought out the aboutme.google.com and I look, looked myself up then. I'm like, well, thank God you got quite a few things wrong, but at the same time, <laughs> you got an awful lot of things I didn't even know were there. Like, like, and you can choose to use use DuckDuckGo instead as an alternative to not have the same tracking. Yeah. So very quickly, we've heard that the census is probably going Mm -hmm. digital for the next version of the census. Um, What are some of the implications of that change? So that's very interesting. Um, The census commissioned a privacy expert, uh, who I think was a deputy privacy commissioner previously, um, to review this a couple of years ago, and he said not too big a risk to privacy. But that was very inconvenient. So more recently they've commissioned someone else who has conveniently said no no problem whatsoever. Um, uh, The risk that I see is um, the census going digital, they send you a letter at home or an email with a link. It is particular to you. All of a sudden, you have a census you're filling in that is not some anonymized census. It is where you live. It is geolocated. Um, it is your personal information. It is a search for not just um, the population census, but the household, who's in every household. Mm. Uh, and to say this sort of data can't be, um, can be de-identified successfully and not reconstituted is not borne out by the academic literature. Mm. Mm. It happens quite a lot. I mean, I've just uh, filling out a lot of doc- a lot of forms over the Christmas break, and there's all information there. I'm kind of like, why are you asking me this? Like, this has got, no- but I have. It says it's required. Yeah, it's been happening for years. Like every time you you go and get it, you go you go and get a physio appointment. You have to put everything into the information, like my name, phone number, email, date of birth. Like, why not? None of this is relevant. Just so, so fix my ankle. Exactly. So I mean, in the UK, there's been a court case around the fact a conscientious objector didn't want to give information to their data because it was being handled by a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. They didn't feel comfortable with a US defense contractor having access to this vast array of personal data and being compelled by the Patriot Act to hand over data they had control over at the whim of government. Dr. Silet Dreyfus, we could listen to you and interrogate you about these fascinating topics for all night, but unfortunately we can't. On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It with Vanessa, <laughs> Warren, <laughs> James, Dan, a very rusty Vanessa, and uh, we are excited to be speaking to Bonnie Shaw. She's the strategy lead at Smart City Office at the City of Melbourne, and she's also a guest with Pause Festival this week. Welcome, Bonnie. Hi, folks. How are you doing? We're great, thank you. Now, you're speaking on a panel called Get On Board the Smart City tomorrow at Deakin Edge as part of Pause Fest. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what a smart city is to you? Sure. Um, so I've just joined, uh, pretty recently joined the smart city office at the City of Melbourne. Um, 
And what we're looking at there is how we connect human, physical and digital systems to enable livability. So what we're talking about is is really how we look out to the future and the uh, technology influences and changes that we'll be facing and how we can approach that and uh, and use technologies and enable it to improve people's lives in the city. Interesting. It's, uh, I guess, a, um, uh, a phenomenon that's been um, gathering steam over the past decade or so. Uh, how, how would you describe the, the leaps and bounds uh, Melbourne is making? Are we, uh, are we a digital city? Are we a smart city? Or are we um, just sort of coming to grips with it now um, with the formation of the office last year? Oh, I think if you look at some of the work the city's been doing over the last several years, you'll find some really great projects that align with a smart city vision. Um, we've had a, an innovation lab running for a couple of years now who have done some great work with a service design focus where they do contextual inquiry around a human-centred design process, the digital service. Um, they've done a, a great project in the last year with working with deaf, blind and deaf, blind people in Melbourne to understand how they experience the city. Um, what was originally... Um, kind of scoped out as a, a an app project, an app development project, um, after working really closely with these people, um, led to uh, a much more uh, contextualised use of iBeacons to help them navigate the city. Uh, and so what, what we're, we're really doing is taking a human-centred approach um, to understand how we can use technology to enable better experiences. But we've got projects like um, an iBeacon um, and sensors around the city that we've had for a few years now that do live pedestrian counts. And so there's a website available that people can access that has almost real-time data of um, the number of people moving around the streets in the city, which is pretty awesome. So the, the uh, big issue users should get onto that one. Pressing me to help out data. Great yeah. idea. Um, I mean, as soon as I, I, I saw we were, we were uh, interviewing you and uh, what, what it was about, it instantly made me think of the Internet of Things, and mm-hmm. I started to start thinking about um, the the sort of the health sector in the, within the city, but like you say, with the deaf and the blind and the disabled, that it's it's a perfect opportunity to be able to make them it, make it easier for them to navigate around the town, even be, be through directing you where the, the where the ability for wheelchairs are, or telling you when the lights are changing, or knowing that you are there and you need and need additional assistance is that the sort of, and so they're the sort of things that you're sort of starting the, the ideas are sort of permeating through into sort of helping society cope with it within the city yeah absolutely um, there's uh, there's a big piece around um, sorry I've just been joined by my little boy <laughs> um, and welcome to the radio <laughs> yeah, exactly um, uh, the joys of a working mum um, there's uh, there's some really interesting stuff around um, how we enhance the experience of people, but also efficiencies in the city. So you look at something like um, putting sensors in bins to track how full they are, um, and that starts to build efficiencies in in that system where you can um, you can have a sensor tell a truck when it's when it's full so that they can come and pick up the trash mm. or um, you can uh, prevent a bin from overflowing so that um, you're, you're letting the network know when uh, it can, can work in the most efficient way possible. So you start to yeah. um, remove those inefficiencies. So there's, that, there's a service design in there. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you were saying all the buzzwords that, that I loved. And lo- <laughs> like, spill out of my mouth. I try and stay away from buzzwords. There's a lot of that in this, <laughs> in this space. Yeah. So, um, so, Bonnie, some of these um, projects that we've seen, there was one where all of the, the trees in the city of Melbourne were tagged and people could um, could send messages to, to the government about, oh, this tree's not looking so well. But they mm-hmm. ended up writing love letters to their favourite trees and, and it it's almost gorgeous, turned right? into an art piece. Um, is there... You know, do you have any data on the sort of people who are engaging with the city and and who is maybe left out of some of those conversations? That's a great question. Um, So I think one of the the critical focus for us is around engaging people in this work. Um, And the perspective that we take is really um, uh, focused around co-design and building some of this stuff with our community. The challenges that we're going to face in the future are, are going to be incredibly complex and we'll, we'll really need um, a lot of collaboration to address them in ways that do good things for the city. And so we, um, we really take a, a strong approach to engaging and working with the community in Melbourne. And there's actually a project that we've got up at the moment, um, which is a refresh of the community plan. It's called Future Melbourne 2026, and it's a strategic plan for the city. Uh, and it's it's fundamentally informed by the community. Uh, and so it's an opportunity right now for anyone in the city to get online and contribute their thoughts and ideas about what the city of the future should be. Mm-hmm. And then that actually goes through a synthesis and deliberative process and is presented to council. Um, and so we're working pretty hard to make sure that we get as many people involved in that process as possible. I... Um by default, I kind of I love the idea of being able to um, uh, weave all these systems and um, uh, processes together. But it also kind of sounds like a, a, um, a public servant's wet dream, like a, the, a city, de- <laughs> a city designed for efficiency, where nobody has to go into work and manage all all of the kind of multivariate systems and processes and things that that have to happen. Um, I, I do I'm reading one of the articles. There was a good quote from uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, but Rem Coolhouse. Um, what is smart cities? only offer improvement, whereas a possibility of transgression. Um, I was listing a lot of the cities, particularly in uh, India and China, where they've designed cities based mm-hmm. on these principles, and they're not actually great for humans. They're perhaps a little bit mm-hmm. too clever and a little bit too cold. And they were suggesting that the smart cities were the places like London or San Francisco, or places where you can blend the old with the new, and you can kind of drift off Absolutely. the grid if you want to, and then you can plug yourself back in. Um, I mean, you yourself, what, what do you think it would feel like in 10 years' time to walk through one of these cities where everything that you're thinking about is being guessed and you're being told that's not the best way to walk or if you want to get to your meeting on time, go that way? And it's kind of back to that the, minority report style where you yeah. walk past an advertiser yeah. and it starts to advertise something you've looked at earlier. It's all a matter of yeah. perspective, isn't it? Like, yeah. it, on, if, on a good day, it sounds great, but it, it could be a very dehumanising kind of thing where mm. you're not thinking about what you're doing and you're not um, going, you know what, I feel like eating somewhere different today, but it's saying, you know, uh, you your GP is going to be notified on your healthcare plan if you go if you walk through this door. I mean, where's the where's the where's the possibility of saying it's not about efficiency? It's not about the best design for all. Um, everyone should be allowed to find their own best experience in a city. I I think that's up to all of us. Um, I think we we interact with, um, with well, we've been building cities for hundreds of years, uh, and some of the cities that you listed are some of the biggest and oldest uh, around and. Um, that experience of being in them is is really sophisticated. Uh, Melbourne is known as 
the most livable city in the world and that's for a really great reason because it's been designed and built and lived for a long time now and the technology systems that we engage with um, are still pretty young um, you know the iPhone was released in 2007 um, and so the, the interactions that we that right Yes, I, I, I thought it was 2008. Dan's like, no, no, you're right, it's 2007. <laughs> so, no, I got mine first one in 2008. Sorry. But the, the interactions that we have um, and have had in the years since um, some of these platforms have started to emerge and, and have had in, incredible adoption have become more sophisticated so quickly. Uh, and so I think there's a huge amount of potential and opportunity in the years ahead to start to marry up some of the really sophisticated experiences that we have in the city where we can navigate for excitement and discovery um, and find ways to, to marry that with these digital systems and, and infrastructure to help us live a really rich life. I think one of the other things, uh, I may be wrong here, but you are involved in, in Code for Australia as well, perhaps, or, or have an interest in it. I, I think the idea mm -hmm. that it shouldn't be something that government or a central agency controls, the development of a smart city, the fact that you can build a platform and everyone can build on top of it is really mm -hmm. important. Can, can you talk a little bit about um, what the Melbourne office is doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my my boss is the chief digital officer and, and one of the things that she talks about is the city is that our living lab. Um, and uh, we... we we want to build stuff together. Um, we're doing some work with the startup community at the moment and are taking a customer-led approach. So we, um, we're trying to understand the needs of that community and how we can best support them to deliver value. Um, and so we, we absolutely believe in this, um, this approach of working with the community to co-design. Uh, I think particularly working in local government, we have an opportunity where we're on the ground. We um, we manage a lot of the stuff that people can see and feel and touch. And just, uh, and just and quickly, so, sorry, oh, sorry, I'm doing oh, quickly. Did you do you? Um, is there any sort of open? Is, is, will it be sort of some of these feeds be open source so that you can people like the startup community can sort of get access to some of this information to be able to come up with some ideas? Uh, yeah, so we have an open data platform where right. we we have a, a very well regarded set of um, of data that, that anyone can access. Yep. Um, and that's certainly a priority of, of this office to expand and grow that both um, with the data that's available but also getting people to use it. Sure. Fantastic. Absolutely. Bonnie, it's great to hear all of those little, you know, thoughts and ideas and beginnings of plans that are starting to happen in Melbourne. And uh, we've been excited to see what's happened already. Have a great session tomorrow at Pause Fest. And Thank we look so forward to seeing more of the uh, products of your work. Great. Thank you so much. You're Thanks very welcome. Guys. All right. Bye. This week on Max Hitroom. The symphony orchestra meets the synthesizer. Matt Brock explores what happens when you mix symphonic and electronic musicians together. Following performances from Flight Facilities and Derek May and Jeff Mills at the Maya Music Bowl, Matt gets the lowdown with MSO conductor David Rossi, Flight Facilities' Hugo Grossman and Touch Sensitive's Michael DiFrancesco. That's Max Headroom. This Thursday, 7pm on Triple R. 
7.57 on Triple R for the final bit of Bite Into It with James Warren, Vanessa and Dan. Thanks for being with us for our first show back this year, guys. It's um, It's been fantastic to be back broadcasting to you and we hope to see you on the Twitters at uh, Bite Into It. Uh, we usually wind up the show with a few events and things and uh, one that, that cropped up that's a little bit uh, Lunar New Year specific and made me happy was that Steam have announced a Lunar New Year sale. So if you know Steam, it's an online game platform. You can log in and uh, and they've put things on sale for the week. So it goes until the 12th of Feb. Do check that out. Uh, you Up know. to 70% off yeah. some of your favourite <laughs> titles. <laughs> it's a bit salesy, but um, you know, famous for, for things like the, the humble bundles that you can get on there that, that are great value, ha- often have a, a package of indie games. It's a bit like the vibrant indie music scene of old but uh, but in the game space, which is nice to see. Uh, would anyone like to tackle the event? Oh, the uh, e-fashion. Um, we're all about e-fashion here. Um, if there is something in e-fashion, James Noble will be sporting it. Um, <laughs> we'll be bring, bringing it to you first. Yeah, I'll borrow it from you. You can borrow it. Um, Laneway Learning, um, which is a great uh, program for um, picking up skills and knowledge, is holding a session on Wednesday, uh, March 2nd, uh, from 8pm to 9.15 at Captain Melville on e-fashion and sewing electronics. Um, It's all about sort of bringing electronics into everyday fashion, so having a bit of a play. Um, You'll learn about wearable technologies, um, how to use conductive thread, LEDs, basic circuit design. So um, if you're interested in, I don't know... um, Putting indicators on your bike jacket is pretty good um, over this side of town. Um, Stop signs, those kinds of things, give it a go. Check it out. Great. Thanks, Warren. And uh, we'd like to do a shout-out to securetheinternet.org, which is the site that Sulet left us with to check out. And um, it's to lobby our governments uh, about the importance of uh, encryption. And uh, we should really uh, all check that out after this. Thank you so much for being with us this evening, dear listeners. And thanks to our guests, Sulet and Bonnie, both appearing at Pause Fest this week. We've been bite into it. from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.